0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Just a while back now, I had a conversation with CTS coach Jason Koop as he was on his way to the Black Canyon 100K. And so for this episode, Jason Koop makes his return to Off the Couch following the release of the second edition of his book, Training Essentials for Ultra Running. So in this conversation, I talked to Koop about why he updated this book. We discussed the increase in ultramarathon specific research We talk about myths around running economy, the art of pairing coaches with athletes, how Coop thinks we ought to go about weeding out some of the bad science that is rather prevalent on social media from, you know, the good science. And of course, we talk a bit about his time with Timothy Olson on the PCT. So that's what we have in store for you today. It was great to catch up with Coop. And so let's just go ahead and get right to it. Here we go. Well, Jason Coop, how are you today, and where the hell are you today
1: <laughs> i'm I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off um I'm in the northern part of phoenix <laughs> uh it's uh the it's the Friday before the black canyon one hundred k so i'm I'm en route there to go uh support a number of athletes. Uh, I am coming from a golf tournament, which I've always wanted to go to. I did not play in the golf tournament; I was just watching uh, uh, with my brother as the Waste Management Open, which has been happening uh, kind of Super Bowl Sunday weekend. Uh, and he's always said it's a really good time. And then before that, I was out training on the Cokoda course, kind of all week. So I've been <laughs> I've been a little bit of been a little bit of everywhere as the case has been with my life for the last five years so it's part of the course
0: so actually nothing nothing really different here uh this is just your standard procedure
1: just a standard procedure i pull over the side of the road (laughs) i am in front of some random hospital in northern phoenix that happens to have a really nice block of shade and, um, I can, I'm in my van. I don't know if you guys have a YouTube version of this that will properly display my wonderful background here, yeah. of my, uh, clothes storage. But, uh, uh, yeah. So I pull over the side of the road, do a podcast. Sometimes I'm recording them myself. Yep. Sometimes I'm on a podcast, yep. but that is the road of show. And then when I close this up, I'm going to close my van up and head back up the road and get somewhere, get somewhere next.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been looking forward to having you back on and having this conversation and for a number of reasons, but it does strike me when you were on Off the Couch last time, this was actually just before you started the CoopCast, your own podcast. So, you know, at the time you were, I remember we talked and you kind of had a bunch of questions about equipment and stuff. And then now look at you, you're like this seasoned veteran.
1: I don't know about that <laughs> if maybe i'm a seasoned hack that's what i would consider it more often than not um i, I really enjoyed the process though and I, pr- I appreciate the counsel that i got from you as well as another number of other people that um that had been doing it for a while because y'all saved me a number of missteps um uh, probably 10 times more missteps than i than, than i made on my own accord which there which there are many but um, I've gotten more out of it than I could have ever imagined from a professional standpoint, and the main piece of it I didn't honestly anticipate when I started it, and that was just to create a I just created a much broader network of professionals and practitioners that now I can lean on to, um, to, to go for counsel and they have helped out in any number of different ways since I have began, since I began the podcast. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And something that was just completely unanticipated. Huh?
0: Yeah. I, 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 I guess sort of a weird thing. I think I came to learn about myself some years ago in the process of all these podcasts is just how much I really value and appreciate like good conversation. And I actually think in the scheme of things that one can enjoy and appreciate like in a human life, good conversation is quite high on the list for me. You know, it's been fun watching you get into this space and what you've been doing with it, but it very much resonates what you just said uh, with me about that network. And when you're doing good work in an area Turns out, people will pay attention. They want to contribute, and I think, I think the Coopcast has just become a really valued resource. Um, well, for some in some of the areas that we're going to be discussing today, and I, I'll admit, Jason, very selfishly, I was like, "Man, Coop's been having all of these conversations. I thought it would be really cool. <laughs> Maybe it might break your brain in the process, but to try to just distill a little bit." what you found through the course of all these conversations and exploring different areas of research into training methods and diet and nutrition and the rest. Um, so I hope we have a good conversation and that I don't actually break your brain here.
1: <laughs> we'll try. Is breaking my brain is, is usually not that hard of a task, so I'm sure you're going to be up for it.
0: <laughs> Related note though, and maybe I'm actually going to back up for a second because Another thing you've had going on is the release of the second edition of your book. So you've been, you've been a busy guy. The second edition of Training Essentials for Ultra Running, I believe, came out just the, in December of last year. Tell us a little bit about that. Why did you think it was time for a second edition? And, well, what do we get in that second edition? <sighs>
1: <laughs> Good question. Fair question. Um, you know, I, so let me back up to the first edition because uh, I think that that really paints the picture. Um, I, I was a very reluctant author. Um, by co- the co-author of both of the books and, and a very dear friend of mine. Uh, Jim Rutberg, who has uh, now authored eight books, eight different eight, eight different training books, all in the cycling, running, uh, triathlon type of space, so all endurance all endurance books. Uh, he had been cajoling me for years to do an ultra marathon book, and um, his pitch was. Kind of twofold. First off, is like you know you're a good coach. You know what you're talking about. You're a good scientific communicator. You're a good coaching communicator. You manage coaches. You've got a you've got this kind of like ripe combination to where you can take this methodology that you've collectively developed with the group group of coaches that you work with, and then try to communicate that to uh, to a broader audience. And the second part of his message was there was really no you know, there's really no resource at the time that existed. Um, And in fact, kind of the first effort of the book, one of the the themes that I, I wrote the book and I kind of crafted the content within the book with was to create something that I wanted when I first started coaching ultramarathon runners, because when I first started co- coaching ultra mar- marathon runners, there was really nothing to go off of outside of other people's anecdote. It was this endless game of telephone from this person did this and that person did that. And with all due respect to the people who were in the space, that's a, that's a fine way to go about it. There there really wasn't a collective or a cohesive effort. It's a, that's a better way to say it. There really wasn't a cohesive effort to take all of those learning and knowledge points and things like that, and to synthesize it into something logical that anybody and everybody could uh, could kind of follow. And uh, so, so that was the first edition of the book. And I, I remember struggling very, very, very vividly with one aspect in particular, and that was the audience. Um, Because a book didn't exist like this uh, at the time, I I really had to do a careful job of not overshooting the level of knowledge with the audience that I was working with. And there there are going to be some people out there that Think I'm an arrogant prick for saying that, but I, I, I think that that's a realistic representation of the space at the time. You know, this was 2015 when I was writing this, 2016 when the when the actual book came out, which isn't that long ago, but it's kind of in ancient times. You know, I I I had a hard time um, not too long before that, just trying to convince people that coaching was a viable option to improve their ultra marathon performance and so and so anyway the the book the first edition of the book really took on this tone of being for everybody and kind of set, intentionally setting the bar very very low because we knew as authors in a first time space that we needed to make sure that the content resonated with as many people as possible and from the get go this is one of the things that I was very insistent on um, and one of the only reasons I actually took the project on myself, there there are three big reasons that I took the project on in this being one of them is I didn't want it to end at a first edition is I wanted it to continually be iterated, time after time, after time again, every few years. And so I knew that I didn't have to cover everything out of the gates on the very first try, because I was going to come back for six years later and be able to revise all of that content, update it, hopefully make it uh, make it more sophisticated. So that's the backdrop of the first book. And the second book is, is the second edition of the book. It really does fulfill on that prophecy. I mean, and I, I it's almost uncanny now that I look back on it how much it did because you know five five or six years elapsed in between those two and any number of things can happen but all of all of the things that i said i was going to do in the second edition of the book when i was writing the first edition i actually ended up doing i made the content a whole whole lot more technical as more scientific research it had two uh phd level reviews of the entire manuscript and that that is not an easy thing to do by the way to get two, two PhD-level reviewers to review a 500-some-odd-page manuscript and go through all of the scientific references, all 400 scientific references, to make sure they're accurate, make sure they're being well-represented. Um, and it, so the, the, the theme of the second book, I would say, or one of the themes of the second book is that, it's it's more technical, right? It's definitely more technical, and I think the audience is ready for that at the time. Uh, the first book and the knowledge level of the first book is kind of run, have has run its course, and we needed to uh, to to up the game. The second th- the second part of it is is it's more comprehensive. Um, I added a whole chapter on mental skills for ultra running. I added a whole section on women's specific considerations. And I had my colleague, Corinne Malcolm, uh, author that particular uh, section. There's a whole chapter on environmental considerations. So primarily heat and altitude and how to take those into account during your training. There's a whole there's a whole chapter on strength training, which in the the first edition of the book was basically a 500 page uh, page sidebar. So those two two elements are really what's what's new. It's just more technical, and I would say it's more it's it's more comprehensive in nature where it's touching on these areas that the first book didn't even, you know, it didn't re- really even spend any time on at all.
0: Man, <laughs> I think I like the fact that you said that you knew going in right up front that you're like I am not going to walk into this writing project as if I'm you know, chiseling out the 10 commandments into stone and this needs to <laughs> stand till the end of time, right? I think prob I mean, one, that's just smart given the state of where we were in, you know, in terms of research Two, I think it takes a lot of pressure off. I, I hope that did for you kind of knowing, like, I don't have to try to do everything right now, but it's funny while you're talking and you're talking about, man, six years ago in endurance sports and activities and, and certainly ultra running. It is interesting for me to think about when I'm talking every week to different runners, how frequently it is still the case that people come on and they're like, yeah, I didn't know ultra running was a thing. I I didn't know like that existed. Right. Pretty soon. Like let's fast forward another five to 10 years from today That's not going to be a story people tell, right? This represents a specific point in time still where, right, 10 years from now, no runner will say like, yeah, I got into this. I just started running a long time. I didn't realize other people did it. So maybe that's just to underscore what you're saying about like six years ago was still a very nascent period in ultra,
1: well, so the way, the way that I related in the book is through the lens of the scientific literature. So, when I, when I, there's a graph in the book that illustrates this quite well um, in one of the early chapters. When, when I first started working with Ultrarunners, and granted, that was in kind of the early two, 2000s, so 10 years, let's just say 10 years, 10 or 12 years before I wrote the book, there were exactly six papers published that year. I think it was 2002 was, hmm. the, was the data point that I actually took for, so six. Six papers. You do an entire PubMed search on the combination of ultra marathon, ultra running, ultra endurance. Six papers actually come up from uh, from that year. You fast forward to now, and there's somewhere on the order of let's say just say 150 and 200 to, that fit that kind of search criteria. Um, so 15 year time frame, and this is just within the scientific literature, which tends to lag behind everything popular, right? And um, uh, it, it's getting to the point where I think that we can look at the research landscape and start to draw some really, and really start to draw some reasonable do's and don'ts directly related to ultra marathon. And we, we couldn't do that five or six years ago. Um, in fact, a lot of the methodology that I've, you know, developed over the years has been begged, borrowed, and steeled from the more traditional endurance sports, cycling triathlon and uh, uh, Ironman triathlon and, and and marathon running. And I've been criticized actually fairly he- heavily for that uh, over the course of my coaching career from, 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 uh, for adapting those certain, certain parts of those, of those principles. But now I think we can kind of look at the, the landscape that's very specific to ultra running and, and at least preliminarily, start to draw out some do's and don'ts. And one of the, one of the fantastic pieces of that is this. Uh, framework for Ultramarathon performance by guillaume mie who was a contributor to the audiobook version uh, of my book and he's he's been on my co- podcast he's an ultra marathoner himself and he's the first person right around 2012 is when he developed this he was the first person that really took a crack at saying okay what things are important to performance in an ultra marathon and he drew them out in a schematic and he highlighted the ones that are going to be more important and he you know low-lighted if that's a word the things that are that are less important and we're starting to get the research that backs that initial guess at the framework up we're starting to look at the components that are more important and say yeah that's actually correct it looks like these aspects are more important we're starting to look at the aspects that are less important and say yeah we're going to we're, we're, those things are less important. And the practical applic- – or the application of that to the everyday athlete is is extremely real, meaning if you're – if me as a practitioner, I'm absolutely going to look at that framework and say, well, I'm going to do more of this because it matters more and less of that because it matters less. Here, here's a great – here's a very – here's a really good example in the marathon world, and this is this is very topical because of Nike's Breaking 2 project and all the carbon fiber plates that start showing up showing up at Choose, running economy has kind of been the king and queen maker in the elite ultra-marathoning. Everybody's got a super high VO2 max. The the running economy has really been the big thing, and that was brought to light by the Breaking2 project because they're trying to do all of these things in order to minimize running economy, in order to make that, that running economy variable as effective as possible. They're putting them in a draft formation, and they're using these carbon-plated shoes and all of these different tricks, essentially, that are all aimed at this one variable, running economy. It turns out that... That's really not that important in ultra running, and so much so. And this guy, could uh, Giame, who I was mentioning earlier, would probably come and make this assertion. He's done a, a great presentation that I'll send to you after the podcast, yeah. that you can put in the show notes. Yeah.
0: That
1: that alludes to this, where ultra runners might intentionally sacrifice economy in order to gain a performance advantage. That statement would be preposterous at the marathon level like if you went into a room of elite marathoners and said hey listen we want to intentionally reduce your running economy for something else you would get laughed you'd very quickly get get laughed out of the room but that the fact that that is so in stark contrast between these two running sports right marathon running and ultra marathon running i think goes to it goes to illustrate just how far we have how far we have come and how much we are starting to learn about the things that can actually drive ultramarathon performance versus just guessing at them and doing a shit ton of miles.
0: Huh? I want to make sure I'm tracking you on this when you are currently differentiating between marathon running and ultramarathon. Are you talking about road running versus trail running? Or are you simply like, nope, we're still talking about take the same surface, but once we cross over, say, 26.2 miles and start going longer, which, which variable are you trying to differentiate here, distance or surface?
1: Well, so this goes to one of the classic problems in ultramarathon running is that is it, a, it is a huge umbrella that encompasses everything from a road 50K to the Cocodona 250, which I'm going to do in a few months, and I was out here training for, and a whole smattering <laughs> of things in, in between. And whenever you have this big broad umbrella that you're that you use to describe um, an event and the limiting factors for how you actually train for it, you actually do have to be quite uh, uh, quite careful. And so. I don't want to get too buried in the in kind of the nuance of like where that line is right because there is a technical line it's anything over 26.2 miles. But my point with that is is that you have this singular variable that an elite that in elite marathoning is so critically important and you would do everything in your power both legally and illegal, illegally, mm-hmm. right, as in the case of the Nike Two Project, right. I mean, they were doing it outside of the framework yep. of World Athletics and uh, and, and the I or the sorry World Athletics. Um, once you start to go up in distance, this king and queen maker variable becomes less and less important, almost to the point where you would want to sacrifice it in order to get another type of performance advantage that i think kind of says that i think kind of says it all in terms of both the compare and the contrast between the two sports. You really can't, you really can't treat them the same. You can't treat marathoning and ultra marathon running the same. In fact, it, whenever I hear coaches say this as well, just get in your best marathon shape or just get in your best half marathon shape. It irritates the crap out of me because that's actually not true. That's actually not the best way to train for, for an ultra marathon run because of all of these other variables that are, uh, that are coming into the equation. But the, the fact that now we recognize that there actually is this stark contrast and there's a lot of research, that is starting to uncover why that is actually the case i I think that that's a cool moment in the sport because now we can look at it and 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 move more from guesswork to evidence-based practice and the guesswork was the old ultra list serve and the people that have that are over 35 years old that are listening to this podcast out there that are kind of older and crusty like me um will very vividly remember the old ultra listserv, which is just basically a big email thread, you know, at the end of the day that where people would get training information. We're finally moving from this game of telephone to looking at the scientific literature in order to or in order to inform our practice. And I think that that is that that is what uh, that is ultimately what initially starts to kind of like revolutionize the performance of the sport.
0: All right. I'm going to ask you this now. Just because you've mentioned a couple times here already carbon plates. Um, Jason, I'm not <laughs> sure if you're aware, <laughs> but we sure seem to be seeing um, a proliferation of carbon plates, uh, and in particular, uh, making their way into trail shoes. And given what you've just said about running economy and efficiency, I'm wondering if you have a take on this.
1: <laughs> well, okay. So we, we probably need to back up a little bit for a <laughs> biomechanics lesson. Okay. So running economy can be expressed as the rate of oxygen uptake at a given speed. And literally how they do these experiments is they set a treadmill at a certain sub-threshold speed. So let's say it's marathon pace or maybe even a little bit slower than marathon pace and they have an athlete run for five or maybe even seven minutes and they measure their steady state rate of oxygen consumption and that's called that's called running economy now when you start to when you start to play around with the variables of running economy there's a whole host of things that can affect it. Your weight can affect it. Your footwear can affect it. For women, sometimes the phase of the menstrual cycle that they're in can absolutely affect their running economy. Are you Are you strength training? That can actually impact running economy. And so, it's this multifaceted variable that all too often gets solely put on the carbon fiber plates in the shoe. The the salient point for that is: is the carbon fiber plate in the shoe, very specifically in the in in a road marathon setting, is acting like a lever, right? It's acting like a very stiff plate, which carbon is intended to do, and it's literally propelling the athlete down the uh, down the the surface of the the track or road, uh, at, at, in a way it's, which they are consuming less oxygen so they can either run faster because that steady state rate of oxygen is now has now been reduced so they have more resources to run faster or potentially they could actually run longer but remember the intent is is to create a lot of stiffness within the sole of the shoe so it acts like a lever if we translate that principle into trail running the the biomechanics don't quite hold up to the same Scrutiny to the same level of scrutiny. Um, yes, they have tested carbon fiber plates in shoes on slight uphills and slight downhills. So one to three percent is kind of the range that they're working at, which is typical road marathon you know climbs that you'll that you'll see. And they find that the running economy gains are very very similar in that. But it 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 it's it's a very long shot to say that the use case for a carbon fiber plated shoe in trail and ultra running is the same for road running. Now that doesn't mean that you can't tune carbon fiber in another way to, to change the properties, to change the material properties of the shoe to get some sort of other performance advantage. But here's where I come at it from is that if you're looking at your, 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 Trail running carbon fiber shoes to improve your running economy and then therefore improve your performance. You're probably barking up the wrong tree, save for a few very rare circumstances. So a race like the American River 50 or a very flat, you know, bike path type of uh, type of course where you might actually wear road shoes anyway. Um, because running economy, it's, as it turns out, is not all that important in ultra running. But if you're using that carbon fiber plate in another manner for protection or to help the shoe articulate in a certain way, that might be a little bit of a better of a better use case for it. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that. So I was out at the running event in December, which is this huge industry trade show, and um, the theme for the running event. So so. The last time that they had it, which was 2019 pre-pandemic, the theme for the trade show was CBD. Mm -hmm. There were, I think, 17 CBD companies there. There were everywhere. And this year, there were four. I counted them. So you have a huge attrition rate, right? Just And that's what happens with the running event, right? People come and they show off their wares and things like that. This year, the theme was carbon fiber. Everybody had carbon fiber in their shoes or carbon fiber, uh, like OEM types of manufacturers that would make stuff that that you could put it in your shoe, whether it was an insole or they were working with the companies or whatever. And I would go around to the reps because I get a kick out of this and just ask them. What the advantage is in this application and that application nobody really knows or at least the reps are very poorly educated on it across the whole i'm sorry for any independent reps that are out there that really know this stuff but my experience in this particular area is that they have a they have a long way to go um so i I think that the use case for trail running it's going to lag behind that of road running, just because you can't recreate that Nike breaking two project. That was a lot of money that they threw out that with a very, very specific purpose. And it kind of set the world on fire. I'm grateful that I lived through that and I got to see it and I got to see it almost kind of through the inside. You know, I had Brad Wilkins who was the chief of the whole project on my, uh, on my podcast. And, um, uh, uh, but I think that the use case in trail running, it needs to get flushed out a little bit before we, before we start to make the same or we start to have the same euphoria with how they're how it's going to revolutionize trail running in the same way that it has revolutionized road running and track running, which it certainly has, I think we're going to look back at that back at this and say this was definitely a performance inflection point, uh, yeah. that, that 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 happened in the space. I don't think that that's going to be the case for, for, for trail running in the near future.
0: All right, this is the part where we might break your brain. I don't know. We'll see how this goes. There's kind of a dual question that I'm interested in in asking you. Given the continued research that you've been doing, both for the second edition of your book, but also in your ongoing podcast conversations, I want to hear from you. Here's the dual part. What you... Think are the most interesting and exciting areas of research, whether those are currently in, say, areas of training or diet and nutrition. And then the kind of related question is and this is, I actually, yeah, this is a hard question, I think. Can you separate that from just what you personally, where your own personal interests happen to currently lie? right? Like, man, here are some of the different pockets of really active research, and this is going to be interesting and it's emerging. But you yourself are over in this little corner for reasons maybe you can articulate. Here's where you're currently really invested. That's my two-part question, I guess.
1: Let me start Let me start with the second part first, because this gets to the heart of an aspect that... Um, that that I'm really passionate about with coaching. So I'm not only a coach, I also manage and mentor a, a group of coaches at CTS. And coaches by nature, endurance coaches by nature are jacks of all trades and masters of none, jacks and jills of all trades and masters of none. We have to know a lot about a lot of everything, but we are not nearly as good as the top 10% Ten percent of all of the research scientists out there that are studying these things very, uh, very quickly because we have so many things to actually, to actually look at. So to the answer, the answer to the second part of your question, I can't be invested too much in the things that na- that I'm just naturally drawn to because I have to have this big, broad array of professional expertise. That ranges from sports psychology to physiology to even, you know, person to person communication and management. And so, yeah, while I, ha- while I have my own biases, you know, on things, I from a professional standpoint, um, I have tried very hard. And I've tried to instill this in our coaches as well, not to rely on the things that you're naturally very good at. But to become as broad, to become as broad as possible, and to learn all of these other things, such so that you can be as comprehensive as a coach as possible, and kind of really go into any endurance coaching, uh, endurance coaching situation. And if I can get on a soapbox a little bit, I actually think that that one of the reasons why I was initially so uh, successful in coaching ultra runners is because of that facet. When I first started coaching, you know, I worked with a company, and I predominantly worked for with cyclists and triathletes, and I was a runner by trade. I'd been trained as a run coach and things like that. And then I got thrust into these two sports that I, quite frankly, I didn't know shit about. You know, I didn't, I was, I didn't do them personally. You know, I didn't do them collegiately. I didn't know the rule structure the basic framework. I had no idea about the equipment and I had to learn everything about everything in cycling from how to clip into the bike to how the race works and how the, you know, all the physiology works and even the culture and things like that. And that forced me to look at a sport with look at any sport that i worked with with a clean set of eyes and figure out what's going on first versus relying on well i was a runner in college and so i'm just going to copy paste this and you know put it on put it on somebody's program and so when i moved into ultra running i actually i took that same framework Um, I treated it as a completely different sport. I did not treat it as an extension of running. And I didn't know that that was the right answer at the time because we didn't have the research, as I was mentioning earlier. I just kind of used that. I just used my normal framework as I studied the demands of the sport, of which we could find very, very little of at the time. And I found ways or I figured out ways to ready the athletes through those demands or to those demands. Irrespective of my personal background, um, of my personal background in running, and so, so yeah, that, that's just a really long-winded way to say that I think that coaches are very well suited to have as broad of a skill set as possible, even if they are super passionate about one particular area, or even if they're very, very strong in one area. They're a really good communicator, right? Okay, great. You're a good communicator. Let's not overly rely on that. Let's teach you some physiology. Okay, you know the racing very well, right? Okay, I get that. Like you know the exact temperature of Duncan Canyon at one p.m. or whenever the athletes are kind of rolling through there. Let's not lean on that too much. Let's teach you about something else, right? Um, and so my interest, my my kind of interest as, as a coach, really run that entire really run that entire gambit of trying to figure out anything and everything about subjects that are as far and broad as sports psychology to physiology to, uh, you know, the menstrual cycle for females, hydration, nutrition, you just kind of name it because I view it as critical within the, within the job scope that I have to be proficient at, at, at all of those things.
0: Given that you just said you got to kind of pay attention to, well, everything, if you could just help us from what you're seeing, help us identify those areas where it's like, wow, these are really active areas of research, or we are coming up with really interesting new findings, pretty, say, concrete findings, and then maybe you could say... And here's a few areas where it feels like we are just scratching the surface. Maybe identify one or two spots where you're like, if 10 years from now, well, we might be looking at these particular areas in very, very different ways from how we think of them today.
1: Well, let me, I'm going to answer the question in just a slight, like a slightly different way. One of the theme or one of the things that is, that has started to emerge is that we're starting to see more and more researchers and more and more subjects just be keen to participate in this type of research. A lot of times when you're doing ultramarathon Mm -hmm. research, your audience ends up being so small because you can't get people to participate in the duration necessary. And so you're doing some sort of intervention, right? Some sort of intervention study. We're going to have people run on a treadmill for four hours and see what happens. We're going to give them this supplement or we're going to measure their oxygen uptake or whatever. That automatically precludes a lot of people, right? Both on the on the Research side and also on the subject side of things because they don't want to run on the treadmill for four hours. We're starting to see just more and more people just kind of accept it as part of the part part of the deal, and they just and they just want to do it. And so that opens up because we now have greater accessibility to researchers and and athletes that will want to that want to participate in this research to do a lot of the same things that we've done in sports science for years we're going to look at hydration we're going to look at carbohydrate intake we're going to look at you know how gait patterns change and things like that um those things have been done over short scales uh over the traditional what i'll call the the traditional endurance events the fact that they're now getting kind of like repopulated or reproduced into a longer setting has just been a theme that i've seen uh emerge where literally they're taking Either the exact same intervention or the exact same protocol, they're just doing it for a longer period of time and um, uh, and and seeing what happens. Um, the other thing that I think is re- that's really interesting that is not quite as clinical. It's a li- but it's a little bit more practical. Is that the the hardware that athletes have access to is getting so small and very accurate and very accessible that we're starting to see just this mass spread adoption of wearable devices that can capture a whole host of things and being able to filter down that whole host of things into the into the practical ones i think is i think is the next great skill for athletes and coaches out there the fact that you can measure everything and anything at any one particular moment in time and all of the time with a reasonable degree of accuracy anything from body temperature to heart rate variability making sense out of all that data Takes a, I think that that takes a very keen eye from a coach and, and, and an athlete. So that's not necessarily a, a research theme. That's more of a theme within the space um, that I've seen over the pa- over the past few years. That that is both interesting yep. and infuriating, if I'm being honest. At the at 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 at, at the same time, but it, yeah. but ultimately, I think it's cool. Like we get these things in the athletes' hands, and I was kind of privy to the power meter revolution in cycling. Um, in the early 2000s, and what a big difference that made in our uh, in our in the information that we can gather uh, on the cycling side of the house and for cycling events. If there is some anal- analogy to what we're seeing today, it would be that is that we have these pieces of technology that are so accessible that can be widely distributed, and you can get all this data in mass. And then ultimately make sense out of things to, to improve athletes. I, I hope that that's a that's a long term kind of consequence of all these uh, of, of all the wearables that are competing in the space right now.
0: Maybe this is a <laughs> related question, but hearing you talk through this, um, and again coming back to, I guess this question of there are all of these di- different areas of research and there probably are an increasing number of voices out there right telling people how they should be eating how they should be training and the rest how do you go about trying to sift through and figuring out which voices or which resources you can trust
1: that is a really good question Um, we actually just brought the, there's, I think that there's a mole in our coaching group because it seems like every time we have some, you know, we, we meet every week as a, as a coaching group, kind of all 15 ultra runners of us, ultra running coaches of us. And we bring up any, any number of things and inevitably something pops up either in a podcast interview or on social media that's like an exact copy and paste of what we just spoke about. And so I've always thought there's this mole inside of our coaching huh. group that's like leaking. Not that it's like top <laughs> secret or anything like that, but it's just so weird. But anyway, we brought this up with our coaching group just uh, just, just just last week because it is, it is very, very difficult. And, um, you know, social media has um, – has allowed a lot of individuals to really punch above their weight in terms of expertise. Uh, It really is a loudest and slickest person kind of wins and very unfortunately so. A lot of the good information gets pushed down to the bottom uh, either algorithmically or intentionally and a lot of the the shit information kind of rises to the top. Um I've curated uh my own Twitter list and I'll provide that in the show notes yeah. it's publicly available I don't mind I don't mind sharing it. Um but I'm very very selective about it. Um I will follow people for you know weeks and months before I'll put them on this one kind of on this one uh one, one particular list uh, uh uh that I use. Um, I use my own sense of things, to be honest with you. And I know that there's not a relatable point to the audience there because I've developed that over the course of a 20-year professional coaching career and having a lot of very good mentors uh, over that process that have taught me how to sift through the duff to find the diamonds, so to speak. Um, but, but I really, I just do it myself and I, I go back and I look at people's, you know, statements and what research they're referencing and, you know, kind of just piece it together and figure out whether they're, you know, worth the, worth the follow or worth my attention or or not. And I think a lot of people would be surprised about who, who, who I take, uh, guidance and uh, points of information from versus who I just don't wholeheartedly listen to, listen to at all um, in, in, in the space. And I, I would say it's something that served me really well, to be honest with you, because um, uh, the, the, you can get a freaking ton of professional value out of simply following the right people on Twitter. I mean, immensely, I mean, I used to have to, I used to tell our interns to do this is to get all of the physical journals, cut out the articles that were appropriate and bring them to the conference room. And every Wednesday we would kind of pour through. them. it was a very laborious process to kind of go through all of that. Now that we've got, a lot of that in a digestible format, literally at our fingertips and researchers can not only spread the, the research, but also some more of the practical pieces that don't get into the that don't get put into the research papers in mass format is actually quite, quite powerful, but it is not an easy process. Um, I feel I, I do feel a little bit bad for the lay men and women out there that are trying to navigate this space. Particularly on social media, trying to find advice for people because trying to find advice from the right people because it is not an easy area to navigate. People who write very well and are eloquent in speech oftentimes get a little bit too much credit for their knowledge set. And a lot of the real experts who are not who just don't happen to be good communicators for whatever reason don't rise to the top. A a very good example of that, you know, we started out talking about my podcast is with my podcast. I bring on a lot of eggheads, you know, people that Mm -hmm. don't normally give interviews and things like that. And some of them are great communicators. They're clear and they're concise and I can just let them run with the topic and everybody understands what they're going through other ones are just not yeah. and then that's on me as the host to try to bring out the right information and stuff like that when you turn that into the social sphere you can kind of see what very easily happens is is you just see the people who communicate well not necessarily the people who have the 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 right the right information and so um and so anyway i don't honestly have like uh you know outside of a you of, of, of my like bullshit detection you know o-meter um i don't have any I, I don't have like a three-step process or anything like that to finding the magical you know the magical people to follow on social media to kind of like help craft and inform training it's it's been very much a, a a laborious process to to get it to that point
0: yeah yeah okay you said near the beginning here that you were forced kind of to start understanding and coaching in a world where you didn't have this enormous background in certain activities or disciplines or sports. And to be very honest, I like that doesn't exactly bother me. I think that there are there's something to be said, at least sometimes with certain people, We're almost coming in with a bit more like a blank slate can actually lead to, um, well, you're coming in without certain formed biases and prejudices, and that can lead to a really fruitful new findings, and, and and it creates a kind of openness, right, necessarily. So I guess to kind of flip this on you, though, as you have been getting more and more maybe we can say into racing and I mean man you've got this year on the calendar as you've already said the Cocodona 250 but I think also the hard rock 100 right as you have then been kind of going the other side doing these very serious races to what extent has that caused you to either reevaluate or just further informed your own coaching
1: uh you know, to, to be honest, not a lot. Gotcha. Um, I, 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 I wholeheartedly realize that I'm an end of one and I would never in any way like transpose the training that I have done for myself onto my athletes. Uh, so it's actually quite the opposite where if I do... The Hard Rock 100, or I've done Western States, I've done Badwater, I've done Leadville, you know, I've done all, you know, all these things. I try very deliberately to not draw on those experiences, save for very specific situations. And they're mainly like tactical, organizational, here's how the race flows, here's a key you know, climb or it's really cold on this cold, or something like you know, those kind of, those kind of things when you've experienced them are, are, are kind of absolutely, absolutely, um, uh, absolutely valid. But I'll tell you what, interestingly enough, and this is where the discrepancy between the kind of the marketplace and the practitioners exist is that there is, and, and this is a little tragic in my opinion, There is an absolute bigger buy-in from athletes if I'm coaching them for a race that I have done and we see this across the board in our coaching group, people will come in and say, I want a coach that has done the Leadville trail 100. I want a coach that has done Western States. I want a coach that has done Badwater, or kind of whatever for, for whatever reason. And this is way more true in triathlon than it is in, that it, than it, than it is in uh, ultra running. I've got a really good story. If you'll uh, indulge yeah. me for a little bit yeah. on this, um, but, but for whatever, but for whatever reason, very unfortunately. So in the marketplace, having done those races is extremely important to the consumer because it's one of their kind of like proof points. But I can tell you as a practitioner, all of the information is out there. And if anything, having done the races shouldn't bias you on the process and you have to do a really good coaching job so that it, so that it actually doesn't. If you, and here's my telltale sign is if the coach is using a lot of I statements, well, when I did the Western States 100, this is what I did. Well, when I got to Robinson Flat, this is what happened. Well, when I got to the river, this is what happened. That's a that's a sign that they are looking at preparing through the race through their lens and not the athlete's lens. There's always something that you have to be uh, kind of have to be hyper cognizant of. So here's my story about this to yeah. encapsulate this that I think the, the listeners will get a kick out of. I had this, and I'm going to anonymize this as, as, as much as I can. So <laughs> you guys can send your guesses to me in an email and I can tell you if they're right. So I had this elite athlete uh, contact me. This was several years ago. And uh, he wanted me to uh, co- coach them for, uh, for their career, essentially, not just for a particular race. And I was not taking on any new athletes at the time. And, um, I said, but one of, one of my colleagues here is, and this is very, very early. We hadn't developed a whole kind of ultra running department at the time. You know, we had a basically a department of a bunch of endurance coaches versus specialty coaches is the way that I, that I would put it. I said, Hey, I want my colleague, Nick white to work with you. I think that you guys are, um, I think that you guys from a personality match were, were are really well. Cause I knew both parties and Nick is a fantastic coach. He coached Craig Alexander and the triathletes in the in the audience will recognize this name, to not just one, but two of his Ironman World Championships. Nick is not a professional triathlete. He's never been a professional triathlete. He just got really good at coaching that particular sport, and Craig gave him a shot as a coach and really flourished underneath, uh, kind of underneath Nick's guidance. And let me tell you, with all due respect, to the ultra runners out there winning two ironman world championships is unparalleled in the field of ultramarathon I, you maybe with the exception of anttrason i mean in that then that's a very very hard comparison to make the athletic dominance the superiority you have to have to win two ironman world championships is just it's so it's so incredibly remarkable because those athletes are so good across the board. The competition is always very, very deep. And any number of things can go wrong during an Ironman. So I thought I had this perfect setup because I had this great coach. He knew ultra endurance, right, is an Ironman type of discipline. Uh, he'd coach a world championship athlete to two Ironman world championships. The whole thing was not even – it didn't it didn't unfold, but it, it was a non-starter because Nick was not an ultra runner. And I, I, ju- I always use that as an example to say that first off, it's kind of tragic because that person is missing out on a really good coach um, uh, and somebody that would have really flourished under, underneath, uh, under, underneath Nick's guidance. But I also use it a point to say that we still have those market biases in our head. And we see this through the everyday athletes that kind of come through our doors as well as the elite athletes that come through our doors is – there's typically some sort of proof point that they want when they are looking for a coach, and a lot of times the simplest proof point that people can kind of point towards is: have you actually have you actually done the race? Um, and and it couldn't be it couldn't be further from the truth. And a lot of times that's too much of a crutch for a coach to actually to actually be effective. And I and I know a lot of coaches in the space that use that crutch too much to the to the detriment of their athletes actually and that and and that I think is that I think is tragic because you're looking at training through your own lens versus the lens of the person that you should ultimately be serving which is the athlete.
0: Yeah. You know one little trick I've sometimes used along this line um, to me it sometimes helps move like say the analogy into a different sport. So if you're talking about triathletes or if you're talking about ultra runners, like bring up a different sport as in say, okay, would you say that Michael Jordan is either the greatest basketball player of all time or certainly one of the few in consideration to be the greatest basketball player of all time? Usually the person will say, sure. Then you say, well, then would you expect Michael Jordan to be the greatest basketball coach of all time? And pretty quickly, I think people will be like, well, no. And then it's like, all right, well, but this is the move you're doing in your own sport, right? Like nobody regards Michael Jordan as the greatest basketball coach of all time. So I don't know. I've I've sometimes... I don't know why it is. I I can relate to slipping into what you're talking about that mistake of like, well, I want my coach to have run these races or to be, to have been like one of the greats. But that just seems like maybe we're making a category mistake there.
1: Well, I mean, I can tell this, I can tell this through the lens of our, um, of our Athlete services director Dominic, who he he his his role in the company is to literally ma- he plays matchmaker between the incoming athletes and the coaches, and so he's constantly looking at new athletes coming in the door. And he's matching them with one of our coaches. He'll do that between fifty and hundred times a month. So he gets a lot of repetition <laughs> he's playing this yeah. matchmaker. He's been doing it for like eight years now. He's probably the most skilled person in the world doing this in, in, in a com- in a commercial setting. He 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 says you have to thread the needle. You have to thread the needle between allowing the athlete to like have a little bit of that cake of working with a coach that has done X Y Z event because it's part of the buy-in process, and the buy-in process is so incredibly important for the initial, especially the initial coach athlete um, uh, uh, communication. The only times he really kind of like stomps down on that is when the, it's a clear – he knows it's going to be a clear mish, mismatch. He knows our coaching staff very, very well. He's very good at sussing up the the athlete's personality. And if he gets – if his spidey senses get all, you know, tingly, that for whatever reason there's going to be this, you know, wicked personality mismatch between the coach and the athlete, that's when, when he'll usually be really, really firm that, hey, listen, I know this coach has done – Western States 100 or whatever it is, but I don't think this is the right coach for you because of X, Y, or Z. Like he'll, he'll, he'll put his foot down in those clear mis, mismatches, but it's a hard needle of thread. I mean, I understand the athletes desire to have a level of comfort with a coach that has done what, a particular race. Um, and I look at this through the lens of, I know what separates good coaches from, from not so good coaches and bad coaches. And it's certainly not having done XYZ event. That is certainly not the separator between any of those categories of of of, of coaching,
0: not by a long shot. <laughs> I want to let you get going here in not too long, which means I'm very tempted to ask you about uh, you, know, you want to talk about the
1: PCT we got time don't worry
0: about it it's fine
1: No, you want to talk about it well, before we got on there you might as well we
0: might as well well yeah um let's talk about it you were crewing Timothy Olson on the PCT and when I brought this up to you as something we might, you know, talk about in this conversation. You said, well, I think we're going to need four or five hours just for that. And uh, which, of course, just made me even more curious. So, um, I don't know. I think I want to just, you know, give you the mic here and um, ask in the broadest way, tell us a bit about this experience.
1: Uh, I mean, it, it honestly—it's it, the highlight of my coaching career so far. Wow! And, that, and that's really—I don't—I don't take that statement very lightly. I don't like to like play favorites or anything like that, because I've had a lot of cool moments as a coach, both working with athletes and working with coaches. Like my colleague Nick uh, that I was mentioning earlier, I get a lot of joy out of seeing people like him uh, succeed. This one was really special because you know Tim—Tim's a very special human. Way, way more so than he is a special athlete, and that's saying a lot as a two-time Western States winner and former record holder, you know, that he's, he's, he is even a better human than he is an athlete, and, and his, the fact that his family was involved in it and very deeply involved with it, for better or for worse, um, the whole constellation of events around it made it, a, like I said, just a highlight of my coaching career. The care that everybody put into the project, Timothy as a man, as an athlete, his family as wonderful human beings, and the the just the fact that I had the privilege to witness it firsthand throughout the entirety of the uh, throughout the the entirety of the FKT was something really 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 special to me. And uh, I mean, I'll also say that it, it one of the reason it was the it's the highlight of my coaching career is because. Not only did I get to work with all of these fantastic people and had a great result and you know it's very, the, the outcome is very meaningful and all this other stuff. But from a professional standpoint, I really got the opportunity to use all of the skills that I have developed over the entirety of my coaching career with incredible precision underneath immense fatigue. And to get to utilize that professionally is really rare. Most of the time, I'm behind my computer, I'm answering emails. And yes, it's special to answer emails and to analyze training files and to design training programs and things like that. But to have this big you know, magnifying glass put on your profession – and that magnifying glass being the audacity of event, how hard he was going, how critically he was relying on me for certain things, how critically the family was relying on me for, for certain things. And like I said, just how, how precise I had to be with all of the areas of support and counsel that I was giving him. I'm just really grateful to, to, to like test myself professionally. With that, uh, with that type of opportunity, because you don't really get to get to do that in my line of work, right? I mean, it's just such such a huge pressure pressure cooker when you're doing that. When the information and the counsel that you're giving somebody can kind of like make or break the project, you know. I mean, yeah, Tim's got it; he's absolutely got to run the whole thing. But you know, if I screw up, you know, the the project goes down the tube. If I pack a bag incorrectly and I forget, you know, whatever those penalties for failure end up being, you know, end up being quite big. So it was a super cool project. You know, it kind of blew my mind seeing the athlete compete day after day after day. And those con- conditions just kind of like turn himself inside out and then just do it again the next day <laughs> and then turn himself inside out the next day and turn himself inside out the next day. Um, but just so many facets of it were so neat. Um, I can't really, I can't really pinpoint one of them, but the whole theme of it is is just professionally. It was really, uh, it was just a really meaningful experience to to me to to be a part of that and play a small part in the whole uh, in the whole success of that project.
0: Yeah, that's really cool, and it's really interesting to hear that be your answer or kind of a bit of a summation of that experience. Given that when I asked you, how has running your own events? informed your coaching you're like yeah not really didn't really change much but coaching in that kind of um what's the right word well very real situation um where maybe we could say this was a bit of putting coaching into a bit of a petri dish or something that makes actually a lot of sense given kind of everything else you've said you know in this conversation and um yeah a high stakes coaching environment
1: yeah, and once again, that's really rare, I think, in endurance coaching, because most of the time endurance coaches are they're 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 planners and organizers and designers of training. And yes, they provide a lot of counsel like outside of the training X's and O's. It's absolutely a big, big part of coaching. But very, very infrequently do you have to meld all of those and and have the element of It's unfolding in real time. I think that that's that's a big element of this that that shouldn't go understated. And this is my fourth time going across the country in some form or fashion with with athletes. And one one of the successive things that I've learned across each one of those times is that when you do have to react in real time and provide guidance and counsel and support and things like that, there's – not you can't just react to the situation you do have to have a level of planning that kind of goes into it and i'm just i don't just mean like bring four gels to this rendezvous (laughs) point right i mean there's a level of planning that goes kind of beyond the what's on the spreadsheet and what food is going to be available in the next kind of in the next town that you realistically have to be um have to be prepared for and like i said i just really I, I, I really took that as a, as a professional opportunity, in every sense of the word. To where I just prepared for it very immensely, and I got a lot of joy out of out of out of out of giving the guidance and the counsel and the support that I that I actually could give it. And to the point, to your point, where yeah, this framework of not relying on my own experience being kind of one of the kind of the cruxes or the hallmarks of. Kind of the, the coaching style that I've really developed, I think is very well suited for this because there is no blueprint, right? right. I mean, I can't like, oh, well, the last time I did the ACT, <laughs> like blah blah blah, They're like this happened, you know, like there is no, there is no, there is no equivalent to that. And I, uh, but I think the more important thing though is, is, as funny as I'm trying to be with that analogy, is that when you're in these types of projects, it puts a heightened focus on. You have to focus on what the athlete is doing. And that sounds like a no shit statement, but literally how this unfolds is, is your day is hard too. I'm driving my van around in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell phone service. It's 95 degrees. You know, I'm frustrated and tired and sleep deprived and blah, 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 blah. And so if I'm looking at the PCT through my lens, yeah, it's a freaking, it's a hard work day, you know? But Tim's day is 10 times harder and it's always 10 times harder. And if you have, and I've always, the way that I've always approached this, is if you have this keen awareness that the athlete is always first, you'll never transpose your day onto the athlete's day because what they are going through matters the most. And this was one of those projects where it's very easy to get caught up in your own stuff and, Bitch and moan about how hard your day was or kind of whatever and lose scope of the fact that somebody's running, you know, 50 miles a day over ridiculously difficult terrain for, for, for 51 days. <laughs> and it's far harder than you sitting on your butt in your van trying to figure out where the next gas station is or whatever trivial thing you're doing. Yeah,
0: huh. Jason, we could keep this going for a while. I definitely have not exhausted my list of questions, but um, I I do want to let you get going. Um, What are your preferred places or ways for people to get in touch with you or just to check out what you are up to these days, though it is a lot?
1: (laughs) Well, Twitter and Instagram, I'm pretty... uh, I'm not the most... I don't have the most voluminous posts on, but I do try to stay pretty pretty active on that when I can kind of tear myself away from coaching and crewing at events and things like that. So you can definitely find me there. Um, the book is available on Amazon. I've had a number of pe- people that want to buy it directly from me because they think that that's better and you're more than welcome to do that. But really honestly, like. I wanted to make the book as accessible to as many people as possible. That's why I created an audiobook. That's why I did a Kindle version. That's why it's available available via Amazon for twenty bucks, and yeah. usually twenty bucks, depending upon how they're pricing it at the time, or forty <laughs> bucks on my website or whatever. But um, so you can so go wherever you want to. I think it's a great. It's, I obviously think it's a great resource for athletes, but I do think that it's a. A great work, and it'll stay in the test of time, and see a third edition, fourth edition, and 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 a fifth, fifth edition. So, hmm. either one of those channels, either the social channels or the books, are just a great way to 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 learn a little bit more about ultra running and kind of what I do as a profession.
0: Yeah. Well, hey man, it's good to connect again, and um, just keep doing what you're doing. And uh, it's been really fun to watch and listen to some of the conversations you're having. And, uh, it just really does feel like, um, you know, you're an important voice, just kind of continuing to push our understanding of these things forward. And the fact that you, um, don't exactly shy away from a good debate. Um, I think these are just all really valuable contributions. So, um, yeah, I guess I can just close by saying thanks.
1: You're, you're welcome. Yeah. I def- I don't mind I'm speaking my piece. <laughs> no, no, you don't. You, the, the one thing about being super blunt is everybody knows where you stand. Mm. And if there's no ambiguity around where I stand, I think that that's great. People, people There's no lie, lines to read in between because I'm super blunt about stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the people like that or people don't, that's just the way I am. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown adult and <laughs> I can do what I want to at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, hey, and uh, I guess I should say, um, hope things go well at Black Canyon. And um, yeah, shout out to everybody uh, who is going to be at that race and running it and helping out and the like. So hope that proves to be a good event.
1: Yeah, thanks. I'm lo- I always look forward to it. It's a great course, great. Racing organization, Jamil and the team over at Viper are fantastic. They put on one of the best running shows on earth, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it too.
0: Excellent, man. Hey, you take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Jason Coop for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.